0: Everybody, thanks for joining us today. I'm here with a good friend of mine and someone who's been an instrument of the Lord in helping us establish what it is that we've been doing. He's been an inspiration to me. His name is Jim Maxim, and he provides leadership of Acts 4.13 Ministries. And I remember early in and when we were kind of just getting things started with the ministry of Netzer, we were working in the town that that I live in. And uh, we were having a, a desire to bring people together for prayer. And the Lord led me in in a beautiful way into connection with Jim. And then he came alongside and said, hey, Have you ever done a prayer gathering before? And I said, No, not like a big one. And came alongside and just walked us into uh, a beautiful, beautiful time of prayer where people from all around our town and the surrounding area came together and just sought the Lord. It was really profound. And since then, God's just established a great relationship with us, has continued to spark my heart uh, in prayer, particularly in the work that we do with pastors, having the foundation of those connections with pastors being rooted in prayer. On the podcast today I, with the Quiet Reformation is my friend, Jim Maxim. Jim, great to have you with us. Jim, thank you for having me. It's a blessing. I know you're connected with a few different ministries. One of them is 6-4 Fellowship, which we'll talk about at the end of this podcast, but you're up at a... A conference for for that right now, but you also have your own ministry, Acts Four Thirteen Ministries. Can you give us a little bit of background on on what your ministry is?
1: Uh, sure, Tim. The uh, Acts Four Thirteen is we we simply mobilize the church to intercede for our pastors, their wives, and children. Most of the people in the pew think that the pastors uh, have a big Superman patch on their chest and. And think that never think of ministering uh, on ministering in front of Almighty God for them most people in the pew don't ever consider the struggles and the attack that Satan pours upon our pastors it's often been said that if you want to cripple something hit the bull'seye well the pastor is the bullseye he's the leader of the fellowship so Satan has a he has a big target on his back and the enemy goes after the pastor and his wife and children more than anything so what I've learned, if we can take the literal shield of faith that God has given to us and we can hold it above our pastors and their wives and children, the staff, the church, if the people in the pew can... because So I think, Tim, a lot of times people in the pew think they're, they're second-class citizens in the kingdom. They think of themselves, since they're not in the pulpit or leading worship or teaching a Bible study or uh, writing books or they think that they're second class citizens meaning that you know uh yeah god loves me yeah god cares for me the same but i'm really not as important in the kingdom as the pastor is wow that's such a trick of satan to get somebody to believe that because then they become non productive for the kingdom of god but when people in the pew really understand the power of prayer the practicalness of prayer, the privilege of ministering to Almighty God, and then the privilege of ministering to God and and their pastors and their wives and children by interceding for them, by holding the shield of faith where God promised us that we could t- quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Not some of them, or most of them, or many of them, but God promises us that we could quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. And it's such a practical thing for believers to do, and they could do it right in their home every morning to intercede for their pastors, their wives and children. Can you imagine, Tim, what a church would look like if the people in the pew were really interceding for the leaders of the fellowship? It would be astounding. And so when the when the man in the pew, the woman in the pew, the, the youth in the pew understand that what they do on a daily basis— Means as much to God as what their pastor does Sunday morning. Their life changes. Let me say that again. If the people in the pew really believe that what they do—going to work, or staying at home, taking the taking care of the children, uh, growing a business, being a great employee, whatever their calling is in life—that means as much to God as what their pastor does Sunday morning. And when somebody has that understanding. The next question is, okay, God, if that's true, then how can I be most effective for your kingdom? Okay, God, what can I do on a spiritual level that I can really participate in the kingdom of God because you've called me into the marketplace? How can I be effective? Well, first and foremost, that is learning that what you do every day, as I said, means as much to God as what your pastor does. And then, learning how to pray, learning how to go into the very presence of God and developing a relationship with God on such a much deeper level, learning how to first and foremost seek the face of God before you seek his hand, ministering to God, praising him, worshiping him, magnifying his name. I've been saved over 50 years, Tim, and sometimes in order to put me in the right posture before God, I ask the Lord, I say, Father, will you allow me to wash your feet with my spirit today? I know I can't do it physically, God, but Father, will you permit me to wash your feet with my spirit today? Help me, God, to magnify you. Help me, God, to worship you. Help me, God, to praise you. And when people begin to enter in with Almighty God in the right posture, they begin to see that there is nothing in this universe that cannot be accomplished in prayer. That they can be so productive for God by praying for their pastors, their church, perhaps more so than trying to do something else. And that's why prayer, that's why prayer is so important. And it's also why prayer is the hardest thing you'll ever do. <laughs>
0: yeah, no kidding. It's amazing how something so simple can be so incredibly difficult and I think uh, you framed that well when it's the most important thing and we're locked in a spiritual battle right if all it was was just going out to practice the sport uh, that I'm playing or practice an instrument that I'm playing okay practice is difficult anyway but when it comes to the fact that I'm engaging in something that there's active spiritual resistance trying to keep me from getting into that place of prayer Now it's not just the internal discipline of praying. It's also that I'm locked in a battle where there's all sorts of things that are trying to distract me with that. I love the fact that, uh, Jim, one of the things you're mentioning is how our first posture toward the Lord is that we're actually ministering to the Lord, whether that's the washing his feet or the praising him, whatever picture comes to mind, but that our ministry is not first to people. Our ministry is first to Jesus. It's our job to to get ourselves in the right posture, the right frame of mind, by coming into a place of worship, right? And everything everything outside of the kingdom of God is working to resist us looking to Jesus and honoring Him, and keeping Him in His rightful place in our life. Jim, can you give us a little bit of background, just your own? Testimony. How'd you get to this place? I mean, you were you're a marketplace, you're a business owner, business leader, but you're a, a man of prayer. You didn't just pop out of the womb as a man of prayer. So why don't you give us a little bit of background for our listeners? You know, Tim
1: uh, A. W. Tozer said, "It is doubtful that God can use a man greatly until He hurts him deeply." Mm. Wow. I have learned through hardship and through pain that prayer is the greatest thing that I'll ever do is to minister to my Father is to minister to God. But that wasn't always my understanding of life. When I was 18, Tim, I was an alcoholic on drugs and just got out of jail for stupid stuff. And one night I got drunk, so drunk, my buddy had to drive me home and uh, his girlfriend drove his car and they gave me the keys and said, I'll see you in the morning, Max, or whatever. And I hid on the side of the house until they left because it was only midnight and that meant the bars were still open. And if I could talk, that meant I could drink. If you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, you're not drinking just to drink. You're because there's an insatiable demand from a demonic presence inside of you that's telling you, uh, "I need more. I want more. I want more. I want more." And that's what addiction is. So I got back in my car when they left. I went out for some more, and I went up back up to the bar and. I was only 18 at the time. It's hard, as I'm saying this, it's hard to imagine it. At 18, I was a full-blown alcoholic, but I started hardcore drugs at 15, and by the time I was 18, I was a full-blown alcoholic. And Six out of eight kids in my family are alcoholics. So I went back up to the bar, and um, I basically closed the bar out and um, got back in my car, and I was at a red light. I leaned over to change an old eight-track tape player. I know you guys don't know what that is, but... I leaned over to change this old eight-track tape player, and one fell on the floor. And as I said, "Bent over to pick it up." The light turned green. I, I bent over to the passenger floor to get it. I passed out. I was so drunk. I came to for a brief second. The car was coming at me, and I passed out again. They said my vehicle went up an embankment, came down to a telephone pole, and I flew through the passenger side of the windshield. And after my face and head went through the glass, my shoulder stopped me on the windshield. And the weight of my body dragged me back down in across the jagged glass and cut my face like a bunch of razor blades. They said the cop told me later. I don't remember any of this, but cop told me Jim, uh, your car was on a side hill lie, and when I put my foot in the passenger side to get you, the blood actually came up over the top of my shoe.
0: Oh wow!
1: He said I looked at my partner. I said, "Forget it. It's two ladies dead." He said I looked at him. Said, "No, I'm still with you, and I don't remember that, but." They got me to the hospital and they called my mother. Now my mother had, you know, our home was repossessed as a kid. And my father was an alcoholic and, you know, just dysfunction was just normal everyday part of life. My mother had rededicated her life to Christ through all this stuff. And when she did that, something changed in the house. You know, it was an atmospheric change, so to speak. And we used to hear back in her bedroom talking to this Jesus guy and, Calling on this Jesus to do things. It's amazing, though, whenever we got in trouble, we knew who to go to because she had that most people didn't, even though we didn't want it until we needed it uh, for our own selfish reasons. But uh, so they called her and said, "Mrs. Max, your son's been in an accident. She said, well, can I come down in the morning? And they said, no, ma'am, you don't understand. You need to come now. So my father was drunk, passed out. He couldn't come. And so she came by herself. She gets there and uh, the doctor said, uh, ma'am, your, your son is into a, in a coma right now. The intern is there pulling shards of glass out of his eyes and his face. We just don't know what's going to happen to him. She told me, she said, Jim, when I got in the car to go home that night. She said, Satan was relentless with me. Saying, Isabel, where's your great God now? Where's this all-powerful Jesus Christ now that you claim to serve? You spent all this time in prayer if this Jesus Christ heard and answered prayer, where's he at, Isabel? Look at Jack, look at Jim, look at Jane. Look, tell me about this Jesus Christ. You spend this time, it's a waste of time to pray. Who are you kidding? So she said, Jimmy, when I got home, I just fell on my knees next to my bed where we had heard her cry out to God so often. And she was just praying for me over the next few days. And while I was in my coma, and when I was in my coma, Tim, I was falling through darkness, and it was as real as me talking to you right now. And I, I reached out my arms on both sides to stop the fall to grab a railing or something, but there was nothing there. And you got to remember, I had never been to a Christian church as we know it. I never read the Bible, no, none of that stuff. And so for me, I I was just lost. And now I was lost in darkness, falling, going somewhere. I had no knowledge of any of it. And as I stopped falling in the darkness, I came to this black space and I looked over on my left-hand side and I saw these two things standing there looking at me, and I had never heard of demons or spiritual rulers in wicked places and demonic forces, never heard any of that stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I had seen things when I did hallucinogenic drugs and all that, but these things were standing right next to me, these two creatures. I had no idea what they were, but they were demons. I had come to learn later on in my Christianity that those were the demons living inside of me. Those were the demons that had control of me. Those were the demons that had an insatiable appetite for the drugs and the alcohol that were driving me daily, 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 trying to consume my life with more drugs, more alcohol. And they were coming for me. They had a right to come for me because I was their possession. Give no place to the devil. The Bible says, well, I could have cared less about that. My mother was interceding for me and for a long time, Tim, when, after I'm, Came out of my comb and everything. She said to me, Jimmy, when I was interceding for you, I could see she held up her index finger. And she said, Jimmy, I saw the finger of God come down and touch your left eye when I was crying out to God for you. And I knew that you needed help. I I just God showed me his finger come down and touch your left eye. And when I saw that, God put me at peace. I knew that God was going to do something to you. But what she didn't know when all this stuff was going on, I was falling through darkness. Now these demons are standing there. And it was then that Jesus came to me because my mother was home interceding for me that she took prayer literally. She understood that the weapons of her warfare, they weren't natural man-made or carnal weapons, but they were divine weapons for the pulling down of demonic strongholds. She understood how to take those weapons and bring down the demonic forces that had me bound. She understood what it was to stay faithful in prayer and to wait upon God. In spite of what she was looking at, she knew that God would eventually move, not in her time, but in God's time. He would move the mountain if she would stay steadfast in prayer and simply believe him, believe his word, that I will do great and mighty things for those who call upon me. Well, it says She's calling upon me, Tim, and I'm standing in this place of darkness. Jesus came to me. No, I didn't see him or any. I, I saw him, but it's difficult to describe him, Tim. It was a spiritual thing. And he looked right at me, and the essence of our discussion, not word for word, but the essence of our discussion, it was like a liquid sea of love, him talking to me. He said to me, Jim, do you want to keep playing around at me? Not word for word, but that was the essence of what I was receiving from him. And I said, Jesus, I don't, but what do I got to do? Become a priest, a monk, a nun, lock myself up, and I don't read a Bible. What do I got to do, Jesus? In other words, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. And he looked at me and said, I will love you. I will cleanse you. I will forgive you. But you have to ask me. I'm not barging my way into your life. In other words, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And I looked at Jesus and I said, Jesus, please help me. Please forgive me. And the moment I said that, Tim, those two things, whatever they were, they left. <laughs> they and, went running for the hills. They ran, An and interesting thing, Tim, when Jesus showed up, he didn't even look at the, he, he didn't even care about, he didn't even take, acknowledge those things, but they <laughs> froze in their tracks. I know what it was like, Tim, to have, to be in a fight and need my friends to show up at the right time to me. They stopped right in their tracks. And when Jesus said to me, Jimmy... If you ask me to cleanse you and forgive you, I will. But you have to ask. And I, when I said, Jesus, please help me, they left. They vanished. I woke up two days later in intensive care, had over 300 stitches in my face, had five tubes in my body, feeding me and draining me intravenously. If you'd asked me right then, are you born again? Are you saved? Is your name written in the Lamb book? I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. But I could. I could tell you, that Jesus Christ showed up at the most critical time of my life and he forgave me of my sins. I asked him to be my friend and he said that he would. I asked him to cleanse me and forgive me of my sin and he would. And my mother said the first words that I muttered through my broken jaw when I came out of my coma was mom, Jesus is here, Jesus is here. (laughs) She knew that her intercession did exactly what it's supposed to do. It brought down the strongholds of hell, ushered me into the presence of God where I had to make my own decision whether or not I would accept the delivering power of Jesus Christ or not. You see, that's what it is. That's what prayer does. When we, when that scripture that Paul gave us that the weapons of our warfare, they're not natural, man-made, or carnal, but divine weapons for the pulling down of demonic strongholds. And With these weapons, we can bring every negative thought captive. Well, what brings people away from Christ? What keeps people away from Christ? Negative thoughts, the lies of hell, the demonic strategy against them. So what intercession does is it brings down those lies and, and that demonic presence against them, where they can begin now to to sense the presence of God. They can begin now to consider the things of God. They're going to have to make their own choice. But intercession helps them stop what they're doing. Intercession stops those negative thoughts from hell, that torment from hell, that onslaught from Satan, the warfare that we're in. Prayer, prayer can stop it all. When I came out of my coma and I I started getting healed up and everything, I started to see that because my mother had a relationship with Christ, her intercession delivered me into the presence of Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. For our listeners, we just want to say that the story you heard Jim just tell about the intervention of God, that's not just a story for one random guy out there. That is a story of what God does. That's who he is. That's why Jesus dies on the cross. He has the power over sin, over death, over darkness, over principalities, over powers. And if you will labor in prayer for those God has called you to pray for, God is not going to stand back inactive passive he wants to go he wants to move he wants to engage and these testimonies are testimonies that we want to strengthen your prayers today so that you'll lean in because you have been called to be a part of the kingdom of god warriors in prayer you're gifted for that and there are people all over the place who need us to lean into prayer for them so we bless you today in the name of jesus to lean into that prayer